Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupmon, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a new piece of legislation being argued in the U.K. Parliament that could have British journalists facing life in prison, talking about the people's protests in Sri Lanka that has ousted the sitting government and the implications going forward and more. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... On June 24th, hours after the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade, a truck driver drove into a group of protesters crossing the street in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The driver is reported to have slowed down as he hit the women, but did not stop. Several women had to be hospitalized, but the Cedar Rapids police did not make an arrest or even publicize who the vehicular assaulter is, even though they interviewed the person. Why? Because Iowa is one of three states that have enacted laws shielding motorists who run over protesters from liability under certain circumstances. Salon reports that the bill that Republican Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law just last June grants a driver, quote, who is exercising due care, end quote, immunity from civil lawsuits for injuring someone who is participating in a protest, demonstration, riot, or unlawful assembly, or who is engaging in disorderly conduct and is blocking traffic in a public street. The women in the row protest were literally crossing the street. Similar bills have been introduced in more than a dozen other states since 2017, largely in response to growing protests against racist police terrorism as police continue to take the lives of unarmed black men and women with impunity. Following the police or vigilante and police-enabled murders of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Rekia Boyd and Tamir Rice and Adam Toledo and Eric Garner and George Floyd, the protests against police terrorism grew with people taking to the streets, often stopping traffic to raise the issue. If people don't understand why that's done, it's simple. If our lives can be upended by police killings or vigilante killings that the police cover up, then your commute has to be inconvenienced to hear about it until it stops. It is literally an expression of the chant, no justice, no peace. We don't have justice, then you won't have peace. USA Today reported that most of the vehicle attacks on racial justice protests happened in 2020, of course, during the uprising against the public lynching of George Floyd. There were at least 104 incidents of people driving vehicles into protests from May 27th through September 5th of that year, including 96 by civilians and eight by police, according to Ari Wheel, a terrorism researcher at the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Threats. Wheel said that by analyzing news coverage, court documents, and patterns of behavior, such as when people allegedly yelled slurs at protesters or turned around for a second hit, 
He determined that at least 43 of the incidents were malicious and 39 of those drivers have been charged. But some state legislatures decided that instead of holding those who commit vehicular assault against protesters accountable for their actions, they will deputize drivers to run over protesters to silence them and provide legal cover for their actions instead. So much for the First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now that legislation is being extended to cover vehicular attacks on reproductive rights protests, it's ironic. No, it's hypocritical. Because, of course, the states where these laws have been enacted are led by mostly Republican governors and Republican legislatures who claim to be pro-life. The entire idea that anti-abortion people are actually pro-life is a huge disconnection because clearly the lives of people who are already here aren't as valuable to them as fetuses if anyone can run over fully alive protesters with their cars and not be charged with a crime. In fact, the anti-abortion movement itself is and always has been incredibly violent, being perfectly comfortable with harming living people in their effort to allegedly protect the unborn. Over the past 43 years, anti-abortion extremists have committed at least 11 murders, attempted over two dozen more, issued almost 1,000 threats of harm or death, and have been involved in 614 stalking incidents and four kidnappings, according to the National Abortion Federation. They have also bombed more than 40 abortion clinics, set fire to nearly 200, and made roughly 670 bomb threats. And very often when you bring up this violence with the so-called pro-life people, they will say, well, I don't condone violence, but they are defending the unborn. So they're perfectly fine with swapping one life or many lives for others, which makes them not actually pro-life at all, but pro-birth. And as we see more and more protests against the Supreme Court's decision, overturning Roe versus Wade and demanding state legislatures protect women's right to bodily autonomy across the country, we are going to see more and more vehicle and other attacks on people who take to the streets to demand that human rights be protected and respected. And the pro-life crowd will not say a word in the defense of those people's lives. But as we've seen, The right has a very willing coterie of henchmen to carry out their violence in the streets, from armed Proud Boys rushing drag events, their fascist cousins, Patriot Front threatening community pride celebrations, the right-wing thugs showing up to Disney events threatening attendees and calling them pedophiles because of a widely circulated right-wing conspiracy theory, to heavily armed members of several right-wing militia groups showing up to intimidate protesters post-row, these incidents are accelerating as the right consolidates power in the face of a feckless and spineless allegedly liberal opposition party. Because as horrible as the GOP is, the Democrats have repeatedly failed to protect the people on any level, but spends a lot of energy and resources at the state level denying voters their right to a third-party vote and, at the congressional level, refusing to use the bully pulpit of the presidency to do anything for the people other than to bargain with the right wing for their benefit. 
all the while fundraising off the people to vote for them to stop the right wing that they're actually in collusion with. When we say we keep us safe, we mean that. Because we literally are all we've got in the fight against this system of consolidated far right and center right wing power in this country. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on, as they say. I'm happy to be joined by journalist and author Daniel Lazare to talk about uh, another aspect of the Democrats' fecklessness, and that is Joseph Biden's upcoming trip to the Middle East. Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Biden is uh, about to visit... uh, the Middle East, with a a, a beginning of his trip starting in, of all places, Israel and the Occupied West Bank, um, which is, of course, at the center of U.S. Middle East policy. But what does Biden's uh, visit to the Middle East in general and the fact that he's starting it in the Occupied West Bank say in regard to U.S. policy regarding the region and Biden's policy in particular? Well, you know, you know, Joe Biden is is really you know, everyone, everyone loves to dump on poor Joe Biden these days, but he really is no worse than any other American president. Who have essentially their two top priorities in the Middle East have been uh, protecting Israel and uh, and safeguarding Saudi Arabia, and because of due to its enormous, vast oil supplies. Um, and so that's meant, you know, turning a blind eye to Israel's crimes in the occupied territories. It, it's profoundly discriminatory uh, um, uh, policies with regard to Israel itself and its own non-Jewish population. Um, and in Saudi Arabia, it means it's like, you know, just, just ignoring uh, the fact that the Saudis are, have turned into one of the most terrifying dictatorships in history. I mean, this is, this is a, a country which is, you know, it, it, makes, it makes North Korea seem like a liberal, you know, paradise. This is a, a, a terrifying, nightmarish, dark uh, uh, autocracy. Um, people are afraid to, to speak out. Um, they're, you know, they're terrified that they'll be yanked, you know, lessened by the police and cast in some dungeon where they will disappear, you know, for months, if not years, and often wind up executed. Um, and yet Joe, Joe Biden is, is going to, is going traveling to Riyadh to reassert America's, you know, you know, unqualified support for the kingdom's security. 
And it is that unqualified support for the kingdom's security that is really at the heart of this trip with uh, the Biden administration uh, going there to strengthen the military coordination uh, between Israel, uh, its Arab allies in uh, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. military. How will this come about? What, what type of coordination, as bad as it already is, uh, can be strengthened, and what will that mean in real life uh, terms for both people in the occupied West Bank, uh, the already oppressed people in Saudi Arabia, and what does it mean to uh, the American taxpayer? Because I think that's where the sticking point is for many of us who have not been concerned about those other pesky issues of human rights that are being violated in those uh, countries. Yeah, well, what it means is that Americans, is, America, the American people are being dragged into this Saudi morale, you know, based on, you know, religious sectarianism, oppression of minority groups, the way they, the Saudi treatment of their own Shiite majority, minority in the eastern province is a crime of the first order. It's every bit as bad as Israel's treatment of the uh, Palestinians in the, uh, in the West Bank. Um, and, uh, and it means that America, Americans are being made uh, party to this sectarian, you know, struggle. I mean, essentially what they're doing is they're, they're arming Israel and the Saudis and Qatar, et cetera, against uh, Iran and its allies. Those being the Houthis, Hezbollah in, the, uh, in Lebanon, um, the uh, uh, Assad, Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria, et cetera. So, so the U.S. is is, is trying to polarize um, the region politics in an ever more dangerous direction. Yeah, you know, and they're setting the basis, uh, setting, uh, setting up the basis for a new war. And the people who will, be, who will be dragged into that war are the American people. And of course, the victims will be the people in the Middle East, you know, who will pay for, pay for American aggression with their, with their lives, with their, their property, with their futures, it's completely insane. And yet the U.S. does this time and again. And Daniel, what does this trip uh, have to do to uh, with with the ongoing proxy war in Ukraine and uh, the the U.S. seeming to to search for partners uh, to shore up support in the rest of the world when we realize that you know most of the rest of the world does not support this uh, U.S. EU NATO proxy war in Ukraine. What does the Ukrainian uh, uh, war have to do? with Biden uh, going on this trip and making a meeting or having a meeting with uh, Mohammed bin Salman that the U.S. government uh, accused of murdering journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and no one's ever backed off that claim. What, what does that all have to do with uh, uh, the, the ongoing war in Ukraine? Well, and on one hand, the U.S. claims to be defending democracy in the Ukraine. And in so doing, it's, it's forging an ever closer alliance with one of the darkest dictatorships on the face of the earth. So this just this makes no sense at all. But also, U.S. policy is so obviously hypocritical that the world has lost patience, and that's why U.S. appeals to uh, to you know to the to the third world, the global south, to join in the crusade against Russia have fallen on deaf ears. No one believes the United States. No one trusts the United States. Everyone knows that the U.S. is guilty of a, of a, of a double standard. 
so, so the rest of the world is not jumping on this anti-Russian bandwagon. And, the, and, and Joe Biden sidling us to uh, Saudi Arabia, the killer of Jamal uh, Khashoggi, as you point out, um, is, uh, you know, is, uh, is just an example of this amazing hypocrisy. The, the world is disgusted with U.S. behavior. It's outrageous. It's hypocritical. It makes no sense. And that's why the U.S. is failing to, to line up support for its policies vis-a-vis the Ukraine. And, of course, I have to ask about the war in Yemen. Some uh, say that uh, Biden's visit could be an effort to help end the war in Yemen, where the Saudi-led coalition has been uh, fighting Iranian-backed Houthi uh, forces since 2015, causing just unconscionable widespread uh, civilian suffering. But, but I get the feeling that Biden isn't concerned about ending that conflict or about the people uh, in Yemen, I get the feeling that this is more about uh, securing more oil than it is about uh, ending any conflict anywhere, Dan. Listen, a a week after Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, launched this criminal war against Yemen in 2015, uh, Antony Blinken flew to Riyadh to assure MBS that he had America's back, that America was going to back him up. And that's been the story ever since. This deepening alliance with, with, uh, with the Saudis will not lead to any kind of, you know, uh, will not lead to peace in Yemen. Quite the contrary. Uh, the U.S. and the Saudis are gearing up for a fight against their Iran and its allies. And one of those allies is, uh, you know, uh, is the Houthis. And by the way, The Houthis in Iran were not allies when the war started in 2015. The Saudi uh, air war and backed by the U.S. and and British essentially forced the Houthis to seek aid from Iran, the only remotely sympathetic country in the region. So the U.S. essentially forced the Houthis into Iranian, into Iranian arms. And now they're trying to polarize politics in the region all the more. And the result will be more, you know, more bloodshed, more conflict, uh, more destruction. And by the way, the, the, the JCPOA talks, the nuclear talks with Iran, I mean, are just, you know, are just on life. They're barely alive. They're on life support, you know. And, uh, and, and, and when those talks, actually finally kick the bucket, we could very easily see a resumption of outright military hostilities. And that will be a that will be a crime that will rest entirely on U.S. shoulders. Once again, American foreign policy is not based on actual diplomacy, but it's based on making plans to start more military aggression. Uh, And it certainly seems to be the case with Biden's latest trip to the Middle East. But we're out of time for this segment. Want to thank Daniel Lazari so much for joining me. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about some developments in Sri Lanka. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Indy Samarajiva. Indy, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Jackie. You got the name perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I did because I really want us to get into the protests that uh, happened almost, it seems like the way it was reported here in the United States, suddenly uh, on Saturday, July 9th, uh, with people actually occupying the presidential residence in Sri Lanka that uh, resulted in a pretty momentous outcome. So I'm wondering if you can give us some background into why these protests happened, uh, what they were about, and their outcome. Yeah, sure. So the protests definitely didn't happen suddenly. Uh, we call it the Aragalia, which means the struggle, and it's been going on for months now. Um, it started, I mean, it's been going for months, and then the misery has been going for months. Sri Lanka's going through, I mean, there's a global collapse in capitalism, but it's hit weak countries first. So it's hit Sri Lanka first, and God knows we have our own, like, corrupt elites and mismanagement. And it's led to effective bankruptcy of the country and lack of fuel, power cuts, lack of medicine, uh, I'd, I'd say actually famine, a, a lot of suffering. And the government has been broadly unresponsive and just, you know, trying to make money out of it as usual. And then, of course, all of our supposed friends and like the IMF and the U.S. and so on are really just out to like, you know, privatize and gut the country. So on May 9th, uh, the previous prime minister who's from the kind of ruling family, he got a mob together and attacked the protesters who are at, they've been like basically living at this protest site in tents and so on. And but then people came from all around and chased them out and then actually went back to the politicians' houses who ordered this and, and burnt them, the houses, not the politicians. But then after that, the, another guy from the, he was from the other party, his name's Ranil. But I mean, we basically have two capitalist parties. So the guy from the other capitalist party came in to become prime minister. And that sort of stopped the Aragalia. Not, it, 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 it slowed the momentum of the Aragalia for about two months. But then people like a broad range of people issued a call to just come to Colombo on July 9th, which was is crazy because we barely have fuel. Mm. So, I mean, I haven't used we have a car, but I haven't used it in like weeks to months, really. So people basically just walked. People walked. They piled in buses. They piled in trains. They got on bicycles and they came in and it was a large, large mass of people. And. So I, I came in at the end of it, but they, they, they got into the presidential secretariat where he works and quite peacefully, I'd add, like they hand by hand, they, there's a library at the protest site and hand by hand, they handed books into the presidential secretariat to like build a library up there. And then at the president's, president's house, they also got in there and I went there and it's just beautiful. There's like families and people are singing. And I mean, it's, it's, it, that was the queen's house before. And you can see how colonialism just handed over, but now it's like a people's house. I know that revolutions always go like screwy, but it, it was a nice, it was a nice moment. 
Mm, yeah, I, I really am uh, enjoying uh, the narrative uh, about people piling on buses and, and doing things hand by hand. It really is the kind of uh, people-powered uh, revolution that we always talk about, but that we don't see in this country in particular. And and I want to ask about who those people are, uh, Indy. Who were the people uh, involved, the groups involved in calling for this mobilization, this mass mobilization of people to come to Colombo on Saturday? So, I mean, the, the Aragale has no particular leaders. It's it's actually uh, anarchy in the best sense. Um, and so, I mean, Chomsky says anarchy is just like democratic self-organization from the ground up. So there's like many, there's dozens of different sort of groups uh, who, are, who are, they've been living at this protest site in, in tents and so on. Now they're lucky they can, they can sleep in the president's house. Um, but there's many different groups and there's many different like agendas, I guess. I'd say one of the core groups is the IUSF, who are the inter-university students uh, Federation, and they're that's like a more socialist-leaning group. But they know how to deal with tear gas. They know how to deal with water cans because they've been calling for education spending and health spending and public services for decades, and just been getting water cannon and tear gas for their troubles. Um, but they don't like represent the Aragalia though, because so people from my class who are like the bourgeoisie, I guess, like they'll also come in because we also they also want to like you know, fill up their cars and like have a decent life as well. The the suffering has united everyone, but of course it does hit the poor the most. And I would say the people who, who are actually on the ground, you know, doing it are generally working class. And I think generally more like my socialist, but I mean, that's my interpretation. I can't speak for the, the Aragale at all. Like I've just gone a few times and I've gone with my kids and so on. Um, there's people who are really deep into the movement. Um, and, and you can actually find them yourself. But I, I can't speak for it. it. It's a people's movement. So it's just as complicated as the people of Sri Lanka. Mm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, water cannons and such. What has been the police response to the ongoing protests and the mass uh, mobilization on uh, on the 9th? Well, so, I mean, during the ongoing protests, like the students especially would go and protest and then the police would like blast the hell out of them with water cannons and tear gas them. But this time when I went in, I actually saw like this column of police effectively retreating and people were just hooting at them. They weren't doing anything to them, but they're in Sri Lanka, we hoot at people. So they were hooting at them. And then I saw and they just had to walk in, walk back in shame. They were just too many people. They, they couldn't they couldn't do it. And I saw water cannons, which had just been taken over and people were taking selfies in them and they you know written go to go home on them and they were sitting on top and i mean that's what yeah it was nice use of water cannon rather than like blasting students into oblivion yeah and you know the uh a presidential palace as you noted was occupied or has been occupied peacefully by the protesters and by their families and, and creating a really uh, a, what you describe as a really peaceful and wonderful environment, truly turning it into a people's house. But, you know, certainly <laughs> the prime minister didn't like that. So where is he? So, OK, so the president is one thing. So the, the Sri Lanka is complicated. I won't even try to explain it. But so the president is like in some like undisclosed location. Like I think he got on a Navy boat. They're saying he might be in some other country now. Ah. Uh, the prime minister is the prime minister is the Ranil is the guy from the other capitalist party who actually lost the election. But he's just somehow schemed his way into this job now. Um, so his office is called Temple Trees. And that was also occupied. And then 
Um, I actually went there today with my wife and people have set up sort of like a community kitchen. They're feeding people. It feels like a park. There's like someone who's playing the piano. There's couples there. People have put up signs saying like, you know, this is our property. Take care of it. And people are taking care of it. Uh, but that said, the prime minister's personal residence, uh, that same Saturday, like people were protesting outside and then cops started tear gassing and beating and, you know, assaulting. And, there was some conflagration, which I, I, we don't actually know who did it, um, but his house was set on fire. And like, uh, so, I mean, some people are saying that it was like an inside job. I, I don't know, but I, I don't feel bad about it. I'll tell you that. Well, I, I certainly understand that. And, you know, the president now has said that he is willing to resign. The prime minister has resigned. So what what is the political future, the political next steps for the Sri Lankan government? What are the people demanding in regard to the uh uh, in, in regard to the politicians and the policies that need to come out of this amazing people-led action. So some of the slogans that go around the, the Aragalea are uh, power to the people outside of parliament and system change. And so that's like, I think that's kind of what people are calling for. But n- you know, in the democratic system that we basically inherited from the British, I think it's a bit of a Trojan horse, really. Uh, what all we can get really is if the president and prime minister resign, then someone else from parliament becomes president. But then they're also illegitimate. Like people also say they all want all 225 to go. So within the current democratic system, which I think is inherently flawed and we need to like revolution it. But within the current democratic solution, the only thing that I think would be like sufficient for people is another election because we don't want any of these guys like and we don't want them to just choose another president from like among the same rogues we want a new parliament at least but i increasingly don't even like believe in the parliamentary system i think we need more direct democracy like like what the greeks had like sortition like i think so there's these scenes now where in the president's office people go and sit in his chair and they each get up and they take a turn like pretending to be president and it seems funny but that's how like the athenians did democracy if you were a citizen which was a violently restrictive category but if you were a citizen you were considered to have every right to power not delegating it between two different sets of elites all the time like you would have you would just randomly pick 225 people and put them in parliament and that's actually what i support but then people at a, another level are calling for people's councils and so on but we inherited this like thing from the british and we didn't question it and it's just been used to keep us divided and keep us colonized frankly like what we are in is that we're in a capitalist trap and we need to like get economic independence Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned economic independence because at the root of uh, this unrest is the economic crisis that is largely fueled by IMF loans. What are people uh, demanding in regard to these IMF loans, which has the country um, relying on aid from India and other nations while they're trying to negotiate a bailout with the International Monetary Fund uh, because the country's foreign debt is around $51 billion which it has to repay $28 billion of that by the end of 2027. What, what, does, what do, uh, do the people want in regard to uh, the involvement of the country's government with the IMF? So, I mean, 
a lot of people from my class think the IMF is going to come in and save everything, and they think the IMF is our friends. I'm, I get a lot of flack for really not agreeing with that. Sri Lanka's been to the IMF, I think, now 16 times, and this would be the 17th. <clears throat> so the IMF is the equivalent of like going to someone who has a drug problem and just giving them another shot, right? Just to keep them going, to keep them buying. There's no sense of like debt forgiveness or whatever. They just talk about debt sustainability. They just want to keep us on the colonial plantation where we output natural resources and labor and import their finished goods. There's no concept of like industrializing a country, of developing our own agriculture, of having food security, of having our own energy security. None of that. You're supposed to like integrate into globalization. Free markets and capitalism will take care of everything. And they won't. We just get preyed upon. And until we like get independence from that, we're just going to continue in this debt trap. You can kind of tell what America does as policy because it's what they try to accuse other people of. So when they talk about Chinese debt trap, and that's a big thing that they talk about in Sri Lanka, only about 10% of Sri Lanka's debt is to China. And then that's on quite favorable nation to nation terms and actually builds infrastructure. What we are in is a capitalist debt trap. This has been a collapse of the international sovereign bonds, which are to banks. And as David Graeber said, some loans just shouldn't be repaid. Like if they were foolish enough to lend this to obviously corrupt people in the first place, they shouldn't get paid. But as Graeber said, what the IMF does is to create the conditions where like you can come in and like break some legs and like, you know, force you to sell your organs in order to like just keep you on this capitalist debt trap. And they call it debt sustainability. But it's not sustainable for us. And there has to be global debt forgiveness because this collapse isn't just limited to Sri Lanka. Capitalism everywhere is collapsing. It's just hitting the poor people first, and we're the ones who least deserve it. And we have to declare independence from this crap. Absolutely. And this is the way to do it. People funded, people powered movements that move governments. I want to thank you so much, Indy Samarajiva, for joining me to talk about this very important situation happening in Sri Lanka. We're out of time for this segment, but we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a bill that is being uh, argued in UK Parliament that could have journalists facing life in prison. Uh, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Mohammed Elmazi, a UK-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin, The Canary, and Electronic Intifada. Mohammed, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Really glad that you could join to discuss this uh, legislation that is actually being argued in British Parliament right now. They're debating a national security bill, which could undermine the basis of national security reporting um, and ultimately throw journalists in jail for life for doing that reporting. So what is this uh, legislation and how did it come about? Okay, so um, around 2015, 
the cabinet office uh, made a request to the law commission. The law commission is a sort of a reformist body, which from time to time will make recommendations in terms of uh, amending or updating laws. And um, they asked them to look at the official data uh, protection rules, which would include official secrets acts, because we have a number of them going back to 1911, uh, so data protection, but as it pertains to data protection of official government documents rather than data protection of everyday individuals. And also within that context, uh, looking at espionage as well. And the Law Commission came out with a preliminary report and then a final report a couple of years ago. Uh, the final report, after the preliminary findings or the preliminary report, there was a lot of feedback that was sent to them. And so now this now out and uh, it incorporates quite a lot of the recommendations from the law commission but uh, only the most draconian recommendations rather than um, any of the recommendations that included protection for whistleblowers and journalists and so in a sense it's it's in many ways like the espionage act the 1917 espionage act that the u.s is using to now prosecute julian assange for publications he made uh, while he was outside of the United States, right? He was never in the United States during any part of the receiving or publishing of any of these documents. And um, except for one proviso, right, that there is a foreign power condition that must be satisfied. That's what it's called in the bill, the foreign power condition. If you, just so people understand what it is that's covered, right, so uh, it, Section one of this bill makes it a, a new offense to obtain, disclose, or, or disclose protected information. And there's all kinds of different words they have, copy, share, uh, retain, uh, or provide access to uh, protected information. And protected information is defined as any restricted material. It doesn't even need to be classified material, right? So... It's basically any material that one knows or ought reasonably to have known would be restricted, right? And then if you do that, you commit an offense. If you obtain, disclose, retain, share, publish, etc., right? There's no mention of leakers or journalists or publishers. That's not mentioned in the bill anywhere. There's no mention of, of such words, right? And so... Um, what I argued is that under this bill, whistleblowers, leakers, journalists, and publishers could all face prosecution under this. And if you're found guilty under Section 1 of this bill, and it's a very long bill, so the, 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 the bill itself is quite long, so is my article about it. It might well be one of the longest, if not the longest, articles I've ever written on the subject, on any subject that was actually published. I mean, so uh, people should take a look because there's other things that could impact direct action activists and and withdrawing legal aid or limiting legal aid for people who've been convicted of a terrorist offense, which seems to me weird. So that means if you were convicted of offense 10 years ago, and, and terrorist offenses, most of them are like speech crimes and things. They're not actual crimes against civilians. You know, if you look at most offenses that people are convicted of, it's stuff they said, it's possession of, of books or material that is deemed uh, inappropriate or what have you you know, glorifying a, a terrorist organization, which in other countries might not be 
prescribed as a terrorist organization might be considered to be a legitimate freedom fighting group like, you know, the, the PYD or, or the YPG in Syria. In Turkey, that's labeled a terrorist organization, but in Britain, it's not. And in fact, there's been British support for him. So, um, but to focus on section one, which was the main focus of the article and the main focus of, of my analysis, in order for that to be engaged, the foreign power condition has to be satisfied. And unfortunately, that meant that lots of people, when they looked at this, they said, whoa, we thought that this was going to be a real full frontal attack on whistleblowers and journalists by revising the 1989 Official Secrets Act. But when we look at this bill, we see it doesn't revise the 1989 Official Secrets Act, which is the primary law that's used to, to go after whistleblowers, leakers and journalists and publishers. This mostly just deals with the 1911, the 1920, and 1930 or so uh, Official Secrets Acts, right? So this is just focused mostly on espionage. Look, it's, there's even the heading, espionage, right? But when you read the foreign power condition, it gives you a different picture. So the foreign power condition is satisfied if any of the, the conduct which forms part of the conduct in question – Right, the, the copying, the retaining, the distributing, etc., is carried out for or on behalf of a foreign power. And in terms of, if you read that and you read the definition of foreign power, you realize that well, if you work for Sputnik or RT or Al Jazeera or uh, you know Voice of America or France 24 or any news outlet that is funded in whole or in part by government funding, Deutsche Welle is another one. That's the German government part funds that then that could in and of itself satisfy the foreign power condition, right? So this seeming restriction, which is only about uh, uh, supposedly making sure that this, this bill applies to espionage and, and deliberately conspiring with the foreign power, when you look at that, you realize what if somebody leaks material to a journalist who happens to be, you know, he works at Al Jazeera. That's funded and at least in part by the Qatari government, Right. Okay, boom. Now you've satisfied the foreign power condition. If they've decided they want to come after you, all it takes is a prosecutor willing to test it and a judge willing to allow the case to get to a jury. I mean, that's all it really takes. Another point I make is that laws, you know, it, laws have to be crafted in as narrow a way as possible if the lawmakers don't want them to be potentially used in a different manner, in a manner that's wider than what they intended. I'd also point out that David Davies, a, a Tory MP, a right-wing Tory MP, well, they're all right-wing, it's the Tory party, but uh, one who's a bit better on civil liberties, certainly compared to his peers in the Tory party, and even, frankly, many Labour Party members. Even though he says he supports the bill, I quote him in the article as pointing out that organizations like Transparency International or, or some other groups, which are civil society transparency groups, which also re receive foreign power uh, funding from foreign governments, could also be targeted under this bill, right? If, if they end up publishing, as they have in the past, documents which were leaked to them, right? Or even, frankly, what if a document isn't leaked to them? A document is published on a website. I've, I've written articles based on material uh, that has been leaked or published by a third party or perhaps even hacked by like anonymous or anonymous Europe or somebody claiming to be a, a hacker a collective type group. Um, 
I could be prosecuted if I happen to be uh, under uh, the way it's currently written. If I work for an institute that receives even some funding from a foreign government, right? So that's quite serious. All it takes is for a foreign government to one way or another to somehow have been involved in any part of the perhaps the hacking, perhaps the leaking, perhaps the publishing, perhaps the reporting on, perhaps the sharing. And that could then encapsulate everybody Regard, uh, that was somehow involved in this, right? The other element is, well, I should mention, actually, I didn't mention at the beginning, if you're convicted by a jury, there's only two possible punishments that can be handed down, or sentences that can be handed down by a judge. One is a fine, or sorry, three. One is a fine, the other is a life sentence, and the other is a fine and a life sentence. That's it. Wow. Right. So it's not. Uh, so I tried to make that clear in the article. It's not that you can be convicted up to life, sentenced up to life, like one day or six weeks or six months or six years and then a life sentence. It is if you get a custodial sentence, if a judge is, is somehow pr- pr- convinced by the prosecution or by them by just by themselves that a fine would not be enough, then the only other punishment is life. So setting aside whether or not you think all I mean, even in the United States, if you're convicted of, of potentially conspiring with a foreign power, it's not necessarily automatically a life sentence, right? So that's re- so. I mean, I didn't make the argument in my piece that like this seems quite severe, even if you somehow are knowingly working with a foreign power in an espionage capacity, right? For there to be no alternatives other than a fine or life, right? That seems to be pretty outrageous to me, right? Quite draconian. My focus was on civil society. And, and publishing and journalism, if that makes sense. I wasn't going to start saying, even if this was just about espionage, this seems extreme to, to not have more options. I just purely made this about focus on journalism. So there are seven or six different ways the foreign power condition can be satisfied. And people can go to the article uh, and I link to the bill. I also quote it in its entirety. So you can read the different ways, right? One of the ways that I haven't mentioned is if so it says right here, quote, um, this is under uh, section subsection five. The foreign power condition is also met in relation to a person's conduct if the person intends the conduct in question to benefit a foreign power. According to subsection six, for the purposes of section five above or subsection five above, it's not necessary to identify a particular foreign power. So in theory, if you want to go after a publisher or a journalist, Right. You could satisfy the foreign power condition even if I publish in an outlet. So there's no involvement in any way or evidence of any involvement of any foreign power. Somebody has leaked material. I've published it. I run my own blog, say it's completely financed by members of the British public. And there's no question if the prosecution decides they want to come after me, they could try to argue to the judge to allow a jury to hear to hear the case because they say, well, we're going to tell the jury that he intends a foreign power to benefit from his pub- writing an article about this restricted material. And they don't even have to say which one, right? So that is a huge, yet one of the many huge loopholes, uh, which are not loopholes, they're like giant caveats uh, in the supposed foreign power condition. You don't even need to show involvement of foreign power. What does that mean? So if I'm critical of NATO 
and I publish articles critical of NATO, and I publish restricted material, so-called, that, that uh, 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 as part of an article where I say, see, this shows you that NATO is acting in an aggressive manner, then they get to then what? Put that before a jury and say, well, you know, he's critical of NATO, and NATO defends freedom and democracy. Clearly, there's a, he wants this to benefit a foreign power, and we don't even have to say, maybe it's Russia, maybe it's China, who knows? Maybe it's Belarus, could be anybody. Right. I mean, that's outrageous. Even if you win, that's that's a major criminal trial. Think about like the, the precedent that said this this option should not be available if they want to exempt legitimate reporting, legitimate reporting, just reporting of any kind. And then they can have a huge a, a, a paragraph that says nothing in this bill shall be applied to anybody engaged in journalism, regardless of, of, of whether that outlet receives some or, or all of its funding uh, from uh, you know X, Y, and Z uh, from a foreign power. So this is why it's quite disturbing, and unfortunately, I, I think it's taking a bit of time for the wider, wider sort of civil society to realize. Some of them are realizing. Actually, it took them a bit of time at first to realize the significance of this bill. And, and you know, with a few more minutes, I want to ask about one point that you raised in your analysis of this bill that really is quite terrifying, even more terrifying than uh, the implications for whistleblowers and journalists. It's that this bill also seems to suggest that even everyday members of the public could face potential life sentences if they receive or share protected information, which uh, you pointed out is widely defined. This speaks to me to, you know, regular folks who uh, share content from a political blog or from uh, Sputnik or from Al Jazeera, and they just share that article on their social media. Does this bill implicate members of the public just regular people sharing content on their Facebook, their Twitter, on their Instagram from these uh, foreign sources, foreign funded sources. Is that what this bill is saying, Mohammed? Well, I mean, ultimately how this, how, how, how certain ty- these types of prosecutorial decisions are made, uh, from my understanding, is it's, uh, it's, these are cost benefit analysis. What kind of message do we want to send? Do we think we could get away with it? Right. So they so, you know, they might talk or target somebody with unpopular views or somebody who shares more certain types of material. Like I said, perhaps material that's more critical of the establishment status quo. Um, so I doubt they just go after I doubt. I mean, I don't know. They'd go after random individuals. But in terms of who this in terms of reading the bill, if you read the section, right, as long as the foreign power condition is satisfied. And I've just explained to you a, a few ways in which it can be satisfied. Right. Then it applies to any human being, UK citizen or not, resident of the UK or not, so anywhere in the world, who obtains, retains, discloses, shares, publishes, you know, any restricted material. That's it. So section one makes it an offense to share restricted material in any way, shape or form or receive it and, and have it um, so long as uh, uh, so long as the form power condition can be satisfied. And I think what they would say is that, well, so like I said, there's no public interest or journalistic defense in the bill, right? And that was even noted by some members of parliament in there. So it's not, it's not beyond them, right? You know what I mean? Like these, some of these issues that I've raised have, have been raised in there. And I'm sure what they say is, 
is, uh, oh, well, of course, this isn't about, you know, legitimate journalism, whatever legitimate journalism means, right? So it's a very broad definition of, of who's captured. Theoretically, any individual anywhere is captured, right? Uh, and then they would point to the foreign power condition as being the protection there. Also, uh, any uh, you, you don't have to prove harm, which is unfortunate, right? So in previous versions of certain of the acts, you'd had to prove damage of some kind as a result of a publication. And that is seen as a bar to prosecution that is unjustified. So they're removing that, that this previous existent uh, bar to prosecution. The Official Secrets Act 1989 is, is largely remaining untouched. So what they'll say is, well, look, that's the main bill that can be used against whistleblowers, journalists, what have you. We haven't amended that, right? But like I said, what's to stop a prosecutor, whether it's this government or a future government, for trying it on? I mean, look at the Espionage Act, how uh, what it was first used at when it first came out 100 years ago. Decades later, it started to be used against whistleblowers, but that was until the Nixon administration. And then, uh, then they stopped using it against whistleblowers. And then under Bush and Obama, it started to be used very heavily against whistleblowers again. Right. And now it's being used against Julian Assange. Right. And if he is successfully prosecuted or he's dragged to tried in the States, he'll be the first ever publisher tried under the 1917 Espionage Act. So what I'm saying is, you know, the wording allows for, yes, conceivably any any individual. So it's more of a political decision rather than a legal decision. Yeah, and of course, uh, this bill goes even farther to cover protecting corporate interests. How does Section 2 of the bill do that? Uh, well, Section 2 uh, relates to um, trade secrets, right? So corporate trade secrets. So uh, what it does is it basically creates uh, a, a sort of similar sort of section. It creates a crime of obtaining or disclosing trade secrets, right? And as is the case with Section 1, this occurs whether the person knew or, quote, ought reasonably to know, end quote, that their conduct is unauthorized. A person faces either a fine or up to 14 years in prison or both if they're convicted. So, it, so it's not a life sentence here as it would be in the case of Section 1, which is government secrets. Uh, uh, and here it's not a guaranteed 14 years, it's up to 14 years uh, uh, in prison. So at least there's more room for the maneuver. So, and, uh, so what I argue is that, therefore, the way it's written here, and there's no, once again, no whistleblowing journalist or public interest protection provided either, that obtaining or disclosing trade secrets, which could reveal corporate wrongdoing, labor violations, dumping of toxic waste, things like that, environmental pollution, this uh, could also then be captured under the trade secrets, uh, uh, under Section 2 of this bill. They, they also say, though, that the foreign power condition must be satisfied for Section 2 to apply once again, right? So it's not just on its own. But as I've already argued in the piece, and as I've partially explained here, it is much easier for the foreign power condition to be satisfied than one might otherwise think, right? Once again, if you work for a foreign-funded outlet, and let's say it's a foreign, it's at a time where that country is falling out of favor, like right now, Sputnik and RT are being heavily sort of targeted and censored. But that wasn't sort of that wasn't always the case. They were left alone previously, right? So does that mean that journalists? Who you know? I remember there was a time when Al Jazeera was being heavily smeared uh, publicly in the press by politicians publicly. Um, 
to the point that, I mean, when Al Jazeera was bombed, their headquarters were bombed twice, once in Afghanistan and once in Iraq by, uh, uh, basically, by the United States. And a whistleblower, a government civil servant who leaked, a British civil servant, if I recall correctly, she leaked notes of a discussion between, uh, she was a note taker, I think, between Bush and Tony Blair at the time, Prime Minister Tony Blair, where he was quite upset about the reporting of Al Jazeera. Uh, uh, in Iraq, and he, and he wanted to go after them, and Blair is trying to talk him out of it, right? I mean, that's evidence of uh, premeditation for a war crime, right? Uh, if I recall correctly, she was prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. Wow. Right? So, right? So, and there's no public interest defense anymore. There used to be, but it was taken out. One of the Law Commission's recommendations was that if the Official Secrets Act is amended, uh, there should also be um, a public interest defense returned to it, which is one of the few good amend- uh, recommendations they make. The Home Office made clear in its reply to the recommendations they have no interest in returning a, a public interest defense. So um, what they would say is, well, this isn't about the 1989 Act anyway. This is about the, the, the older acts, which is about which are about more about espionage. That's why there's no public interest defense. But uh, as I've already argued made clear they could still go after legitimate, you know, a public interest reporting, including by everyday citizens. Absolutely, because it's clear the interest of the public is not uh, at heart here. It's the interest of uh, maintaining a power for the government to continue to suppress dissent. But we're out of time for this segment and for this hour. I want to thank Mohammed Almazi so much for joining me. We will be back with another hour. So please stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary here on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, it is Monday, July 11th, and in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and let us know what's on your mind. Ask us about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all that's tickling your fancy. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to us at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each week. Day and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash sleep slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. 
And I am happy to start this week off on fire because I'm happy to be joined by Kim Brown, veteran broadcaster and host of Burn It Down with Kim Brown on YouTube. Let's go, Kim. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. Always a pleasure to be with you. Always a pleasure to hear your voice, to be in conversation, especially now, Kim, where this has been an issue uh, in Baltimore for a minute, this issue of uh, squeegee kids, uh, kids who kind of hang out at the intersections uh, in Baltimore and, you know, offer to uh, squeegee uh, 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 motorists uh, windshields, you know, for money. and. As someone who lives close to Baltimore, spends a pretty good amount of time in Baltimore, you know, having read a lot of Baltimore news, and certainly you more than me, people have always spoken of uh, these folks, usually young black boys, with a lot of derision. But recently, it's ratcheted up to a deadly level where apparently— uh, a driver, Timothy Reynolds, 48 years old, um, and and I, I noted that when I watched the news coverage of this person, they made a big deal about him being a father and, you know, he was an engineer and, oh, his family's so grieving. But apparently he got out of his car and uh, with a baseball bat and I guess attempted to attack a group of these young squeegee kids and someone shot and killed him. So now there is a lot of uh, public attention, even more public scrutiny. The media in Baltimore is just tripping over themselves, uh, uh, you know, de decrying these young kids. Uh, I'm sure there are political statements that are being made. But a couple of things, Kim, I'm not seeing discussed in the media coverage. Number one, um, the fact that this man got out of his car with a baseball bat, which to me, that's a threat to my life. Um, number two, the economic conditions that particularly poor black people and poor black youth face in Baltimore, uh, that, that, that precipitate this issue of young folks particularly young, poor black folks, not having any other way to make money is not really being discussed. So I, I am wondering how you are analyzing that situation as it's ongoing. And, and, and what what are the latest details on uh, the, the so-called investigation? Because I, I don't even trust that. Jackie, I'm so glad that you raised the point about the economic conditions and the hardships that generally face black Baltimore youth, particularly poor youth in the city, and what even drives them to those corners to work as squeegee workers in the first place. But circling back for a moment to some of the latest details, it includes some dash cam footage that was obtained by the Baltimore Banner, which purports to show Mr. Reynolds uh, crossing eight lanes of traffic after parking his vehicle, putting on his hazards, and retrieving an aluminum baseball bat, 
crossing eight lanes of traffic to confront the squeegee workers on the street. And that is an element that is not being reported upon in the same sort of way that it needs to be. Because had this been racially reversed, had this been a white child or a white teen who was being attacked, by a black adult wielding a weapon and this white team took out a pistol and defended themselves, it would be categorized as that, as though the adult attacker was in the wrong and the teen, armed teen, would have every right to self-defense. Now, in the state of Maryland, there is no stand-your-ground law. However, there is self-defense when you feel there is an imminent threat to your life, which I think by all accounts, everyone would agree that someone charging at you with a bat um, means you imminent bodily harm and you have every right to defend yourself. Uh, the, the alleged shooter has not yet been apprehended and Baltimore police say that they are looking for them and a number of others. Uh, and there has been a reward offered. But Jackie, the way this is playing out both politically in Baltimore and the ways in which Baltimore-based media, like the Baltimore Sun, like Fox 45 in Baltimore, is all framed as though the squeegee kids here are the problem. And it's never asked what drives those kids to those corners in the first place. The squeegee kids are never lauded by Baltimore media and politicians as being entrepreneurs, as being young people who are willing to go out there and work and or ask uh, for the resources that the city clearly is not providing for them. So the whole reason, uh, the raison d'etre for the squeegee kids is just part and parcel failures of policies enacted by Baltimore. And you see all the resources go towards Baltimore police where they have a $550 million annual budget. But that same sort of budget clearly is not matched with Baltimore city schools or Baltimore parks and recs or things that would actually benefit the lives of these children. You know, there are certain elements of that story that you just recounted, Kim, that it's wild to me. Just just the fact that this man crossed eight lanes of traffic, parked his car, pulled over, put his hazards on, retrieved a bat, a baseball bat from either the back seat or the trunk and proceeded to cross eight lines of traffic to confront squeegee kids who it sounds to me like he didn't actually interact with if I'm if if I'm I'm if, uh, uh, visualizing this correctly I to me that speaks uh, that actually doesn't speak it screams of premeditation intent <laughs> and uh, a threat to bodily harm that that's number one but number two, Kim, is, is the point you raised about uh, the city's response, how they don't they don't uh, 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 point to and they haven't been talking about the economic conditions that poor black youth ha- live in, in, in in order to continue to perpetuate the situation. This is not a new problem. A, a, a Twitter. A, I'm sorry. Um, there have been at least. I don't know how many mayors there have been in Baltimore since 1985, but that's how long 
The city of Baltimore and so-called politicians there have been claiming to offer something to address this problem of uh, squeegee workers on the corner. But I mean, how many of those programs, Kim, have actually resulted in anything meaningful uh, that came to fruition? You can see clearly, Jackie, because here we are 2022 and the squeegee kids are a generational phenomenon. They are something that has unfortunately become omnipresent at a handful of intersections in Baltimore City. And when we look at the historical disinvestment that has come into the city and the amount of still ongoing redlining segregation that Baltimore is the originator of. Redlining began in the city of Baltimore, and you still see, um, as Dr. Lawrence Brown has written about it, the white L and the black butterfly. And the white L encompasses I-83, which runs north and south, splitting the city east and west. And then the L uh, takes you into the whiter neighborhoods of Canton and down by the Inner Harbor. But the black butterfly are east and West Baltimore, um, where violence, gun violence continues to perpetuate. And yet, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars later, possibly billions by this point, if we're talking over the course of 40 or 50 years, uh, the continuing militarization of Baltimore police has not resulted in any sort of um, change in the economic status or even the safety, public safety of Baltimore City. And when we look at what's going on with um, how, for one, city schools are, are being failed uh, continually when we have Baltimore City schools every single year that lack proper air conditioning and heat, uh, the children are being told crystal clear that investing in them is not a priority of the city and really by extension the state of Maryland. The state of Maryland has um, been consistent regardless of who has been the governor in Annapolis, if it's a Democrat or if it's a Republican, Baltimore uh, is always the butt of the state of Maryland. Baltimore continues uh, to become neglected and, and suffer um, from from a, a lack of its proper funding coming directly from the state of Maryland. And, and when I look at this incident uh, relating to the squeegee worker and the murder of this motorist, the way that Baltimore media is framing this, um, it's already been calls for enforcement of laws, stricter enforcement of laws. This has become a political issue in the Baltimore state's attorney elections race where the Democratic primary is just a couple of weeks away. And um, Baltimore State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby is facing um, some formidable uh, challenges from Ivan Bates and Thyru Vignagarash. Uh, Vignagarash, by the way, released a plan for squeegee kids, uh, which uh, I think it's a 90-day it's a plan. The first phase of the plan includes offering squeegee kids jobs. Uh, the second phase of the plan involves compensating contraband. And then the third phase of the plan, I suppose, if the squeegee kids refuse to get off the corners, is, is jail and incarceration. And that has been the answer. That has always been Baltimore's historical answer uh, for violence in the community and dealing with juveniles is to put them in jail. And as a result, we have 
generations of Baltimoreans who have either been incarcerated or come from families uh, that have been affected by incarceration with multiple family members. So these these basically these neoliberal plans, because Baltimore is run by black Democrats and has been for some time, uh, they, they don't ever address the problem. They always look for a, a police solution, a criminal justice solution to address the policy failures that keeps poor black Baltimoreans in the position that they're in. $550 million for the police. Baltimore ain't that big, y'all. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's smaller than Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C.'s uh, police budget is around $660, 680-some-odd million dollars. Baltimore police budget is $550 million. The city wants to offer squeegee kids jobs, but in the interim— and, and and the interim, I guess I'm talking about is at least since 1985, Kim, when the last proposal uh, uh, was when the, the windshield cleaners were given ID badges and were instructed to dress neatly and smile and say thank you. But the city, the very same city, could not provide housing education. I shouldn't say could not, would not provide housing education, uh, a, a decent quality of living for the most vulnerable members of its population. And is now instead, because they never addressed the problem of racial inequality and poverty, and they force these kids, as you point out, Kim, generationally to be out on the corner to make a few dollars to survive if if they do not comply with the city's insufficient plans, continued insufficient plans to not provide them with a decent quality and standard of life, then they'll throw the folks in jail. In the meantime, folks, um, Twitter, Twitter is undefeated, uh, 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 exposed uh, uh, Reynolds, the the person who was shot, uh, to a 2019 tweet about someone who washed his windshield without permission and allegedly stared at him in a way that he found threatening. Then this guy is in his car and somebody washes his windshield. All he has to do is keep going. He just wait till the light turns green and go on and mind his business. But he said uh, in 2019 in this tweet, these kids have no right to be out in traffic. Kids, they're kids. And even if, according to Reynolds, as he claimed in his tweet, uh, one of those kids stared at him in a way that he did not like, they're children. And the fact that folks are using everything they can to cover for the criminality of the person who was shot because he was trying to assault children. Kim, what does that say about the, the very Democratic black leadership in Baltimore and their ability to actually protect the squeezy, the, 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 squeegee, the, the squeegee kids and all other poor and black children in the city? Well, again, Jackie, this incident really highlight, highlights the ways in which race and class are at the underpinning of all of this. 
You know, to hear the black elected leaders of Baltimore side against the squeegee kids just goes to remind us how much the black bourgeoisie have high levels of contempt for poor black people and even poor black children. And the race element of this can't be ignored, despite Reynolds himself being a Baltimore City resident, the, the neighborhood in which he resides is Hamden. And Hamden, again, a segregated white neighborhood that has long history of animus and animosity uh, towards black residents that have attempted to live there. And one reporter who has been covering this before it had even been officially confirmed as to what Timothy Reynolds' race was, uh, they went to his home and noted that he had a Joe and Kamala sign in the yard. Wow. The took that to mean that, ha-ha, all of you people who thought he was some racist MAGA person from uh, from the county and not from the city, you all were wrong. And it just goes to show you the media bias, the implicit media bias that, number one, that, that places way more value on white life than it does black life. But this, uh, this intentional obfuscation that somehow white liberals and white Democrats themselves can't be racist to the point that they would racistly, violently attack teenagers or children on the street. And the problem is also, Jackie, is that the way that Baltimore media is framing this story is really making it so dangerous for squeegee workers because you see these Baltimore reporters on social media and, of course, in their online stories, you know, asking for people, soliciting people to tell them their interactions with squeegee kids. But the the stories that they're choosing to recount are ones that personally I believe are either made up or they had some sort of. Um, initial provocation that the that the story reteller is omitting from the story. But by and large, like I, I worked in Baltimore for years, drove to, to the city for years. The exact intersection in which this incident took place at Light and Conway is right there by the harbor. Right. And and a lot of people encounter squeegee kids. And I can tell you, I have never had a negative interaction with these kids at all. Even if you tell them that you don't have any money, normally they'll just draw a little heart on your windshield and keep it going. So I can only imagine the amount of abuse and hostility that they receive, particularly from white residents who do not live in Baltimore or who may live in segregated neighborhoods in Baltimore and who somehow all of a sudden become the victims when the kids have something slick to say, or if the kids, you know, does something that they, that, that the motorist doesn't like, which is what I really think happened in this case. I feel as though the child might've said something slick to the motorist and the motorist decided that they were going to pull over, pull out their bat and show that kid a thing or two. And then they, they played stupid games and they won stupid prizes. Mm, indeed. And I have to tell you, I, too, have experienced plenty of squeegee kids and adults in Baltimore and elsewhere driving around this country. And I ain't never had a problem with anybody, certainly not to the extent where I needed to get out of my car and confront them. Definitely not when we're talking about children. But we are going to take uh, the first break of the hour here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We will be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Kim Brown. And Kim, you know what? Coronavirus is over, apparently. That's what uh, the signal is that we're getting from the White House and I guess from the Centers for Disease Control, since we haven't gotten mask mandates, no no kind of guidance about uh, emerging variants, even though more variants are emerging and they seem to be more contagious than the last variant. And there's this little thing called monkeypox that is floating around out there that I think there was a notice on the CDC's website about, but then they took it down. What is what is going on, Kim? I don't know what's going on. I feel I feel as though you know every sort of sci-fi, uh, dystopian, futuristic piece of art, literature, or film from decades ago. I feel as though we have to be living in that right now. With the BA.5 variant becoming the most contagious variant ever out of the Omicron family of subvariants, uh, we are receiving horrifically little information uh, from our public health officials, particularly those from the CDC. Now, I think, I'm pretty sure, but my apologies for not looking this up, but I'm pretty sure it's New York City that has at least reinstated indoor masking recommendations. None of these are mandates at, at, at the moment. Um, but my big concern here has been my ongoing concern is that as mitigating um, measures have fallen away, been stripped away, really, that we are going to see variants of COVID that are going to elude people who are vaccinated and boosted um, are possibly even going to elude being detected in some of our COVID testing. And that is probably just going to make people more sick and probably kill more people. Um, and that is the concern right now for BA5. And the problem is that nothing is being reinstated. And what I, what I find particularly interesting is that I constantly, so far during this summer travel season, have seen stories about thousands, by the tens of thousands, of flight cancellations, uh, especially during high, high travel periods. And what's not being said is the reasons, and it has everything to do with the dropping of the masking mandates on airplanes. We are seeing flight staff contract COVID and pilots contract COVID at high rates. They are calling out sick. Uh, they are sick. And that is the reason we're seeing these flights get canceled, not because of inclement weather or because flights are overbooked. Uh, these flights are short-staffed because COVID is taking a toll once again on the flight industry. And this is the ways in which we are not going to be able to escape COVID from impacting, number one, our daily lives and any sort of, quote-unquote, return to normalcy, which at this point I think people are really living in a fantasy that we're ever going to return to that. What we are going to see is people become reinfected time and time again with COVID. And the thing is, 
our bodies do not have the natural immunity that I think that the CDC and by extension, the Biden administration hoped that everybody would get. Everybody would just get herd immunity through COVID. But what, what the data indicates is that people can become reinfected after having a uh, uh, about with either uh, BA4 or BA5, and that every time you become infected, COVID, it debilitates you just a little bit more, or it leaves you with a different lingering symptom of long COVID, uh, which, by the way, is probably going to end up becoming a mass disability event that we probably have not experienced. Um, since polio. Um, And that is troubling, Jackie, for obvious reasons. We lack national health care here. We we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be on children and younger people who have been diagnosed with COVID. And the the numbers pertaining to BA5 are scary with younger people, those under 40, who are experiencing clots, blood clots, strokes, who are experiencing vascular problems, who are developing brain inflammation. And the numbers for long COVID can be one in four or, or, or one in five, but that's not medically insignificant. A medically rare event is something that happens one in a thousand. Uh, one in 20, one in 25, those odds are very high for, for long COVID and for the, the national government and our uh, public health uh, institutions to not be re- really ringing the alarm constantly on this instead of keeping people under the veil that COVID is behind us, I think is extremely dangerous. But it also goes into that um, yourself, uh, your, your, your level, your personal level of risk, uh, which is, I think, this, this terrible um, mantra that has been thrust upon the American people that we have to assess our own levels of risk, that our government is not interested in disseminating public health data so that people can make informed decisions about what they do. Mm, Absolutely. Well, we have a caller on the line, Kier. Thanks for calling, Kier. Tell us what's on your mind. Hello, Jackie. Hey, Kim. Glad to be online. I just want to say also hello to Kim. Um, also saying I enjoy hearing you curse out politicians. I do a lot of time in my household, so it's just fun to see someone else on the same wavelength um, on your show. But I've called in just to talk about um, childism in the USA to go along against, uh, to go with your first half of your y'all's conversation. I kind of think sometimes, like, when we think about how we treat children in the USA, um, they don't really have any rights. Or, like, sometimes people say move the voting age down to 16. And things of the sort. And then I saw a tweet the other day, and it kind of went along the lines of, did you really want to be 18, or did you finally want to have autonomy and decisions for yourself? So sometimes I think about that and just how I look about how other cultures in human history in the past have utilized their youth in how they um, run society and decision-making. And then so when I hear about this dude who took out his bat with the children, I could only imagine how... One, it's magnified when it's towards black children. So then if they did say something slick to him, he's probably like, who are these kids disrespecting me? Because even adults, especially working class adults, we don't get our respect in our workplace. Like we go around having our bosses tell us what to do or our CEOs tell us what to do. So then when kids do it and then we see this whole like we have this whole respect me because I'm older than you mentality, I can see how that could happen. 
So I just want to know y'all's thoughts of how we treat children and if you if y'all see childism as a thing in the U.S. Thanks for calling. Love y'all shows. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for your call and your comments, Kier. Really appreciate you. Hope to hear from you again, uh, again soon. Kim, what are your thoughts on uh, on, on Kier's comments? Thank you, Kier, so much for your comment. Appreciate you watching the show. I think Kier is right. Uh, I think that, number one, black kids are not viewed as kids. Black children, we know this through through studies, that black boys and black girls are perceived as being older, significantly older than what they are. And the sort of benefit of the doubt that usually comes along with kids being kids is not ever afforded to black children. And that could be the instance um, in, in this incident with the squeegee kids and the squeegee worker in Baltimore. Uh, but Kara's right. I mean, you know, poop rolls downhill and, you know, people do take a lot of crap on the job. And I think that children historically have been made to bear the brunt of um, adult economic frustration. And, um, you know, child abuse is a thing in, in this country. And even the ways in which children are afforded such few privacy rights, for example, online, in online spaces, and the ways in which adults will openly harass and bully children, people that they know are children uh, online. I mean, kids... In America, you know, do not have it uh, nearly as rough as as children who live in places that don't have access to resources like clean water um, and, 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 you know, some of the things that we find here in the U.S. But there is a certain level of um, abuse and antagonism um, and and really uh, sort of like all of the things that America claims to be about the children and for the children. I mean, you, you just look, you know, scratch that surface. No, America is not really for the kids at all. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be clear about the depth of the, uh, the disregard for human rights in general, but specifically when it comes to children, uh, as shout out to the chat, as Ricky Ryan points out in the children, Cuba, in Cuba, children have rights. And I believe in Venezuela and in plenty of other countries too, El Salvador, Nicaragua, I believe. Um, and the United Nations um, issued the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and the United States is actually, I think, the only country that has not ratified the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child. Why? Because I think this is correct. According to George Bush, this was under Bush, I think, they were opposed to the uh, uh, U.N. Uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child because of political and legal concerns, um, arguing that it conflicted with U.S. laws regarding privacy and family rights. And it was uh, under Obama, I think, that uh, the the convention was, I believe, uh, signed, but it was never ratified. Why is that? Because in this country, you can't have rights if you're considered property. I really feel like that's at the end that that is at the at the at the bottom, the foundation of this refusal of this country to extend human rights 
to to everyone you know to to recognize just ba- basic blanket human rights but really um uh Kim I feel like people in this country still view children as an extension of their property and I think that that speaks to the kind of of sickness and and clearly anti-human and anti-child uh ideology people have um but it also I think sort of explains why uh, there are no protections for children, not even in the, the so-called courts in this country. Child Protective Services probably does more harm to children than good. Uh, there, there is no safety net or mechanism to ensure that children's human rights, that children's rights as human beings to be free from abuse, poverty, uh, violence are met. Not not in this country, because that's just not the capitalist way, Kim. And we're seeing more and more evidence of that, not saying that it's becoming more prevalent, but it's just been further codified. In terms of not ratifying the rights of the child, I think part of that also had to do with how many states in the U.S. basically have sanctioned child marriage in which children, really specifically girls, you know, as young as 13, can legally be married to people who are uh, adults, who are legal adults. And to deny that bodily autonomy specifically to girls, I mean, we're seeing the ways, the horrific ways um, in which that continues to play out after the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, I know everyone has heard the story of the 10-year-old pregnant um, a, a assault survivor who was denied an abortion in the state of Ohio, um, it, obviously, despite her being a baby, a child herself literally uh, could could end her life to give birth uh, to a child as a child. Um, and, and that and we see also the further extension of that in the anti-trans laws in which a lot of these trans laws are targeting children, are targeting the parents of, uh, of trans children or um, those you know children who are queer. And uh, like you said, the kids do not have a right to themselves. They do not have a right to their bodies. And as the, the conservative agenda in some of these state legislatures continues to march on, I mean, we're even seeing proposals, I believe, in the state of Texas uh, that would make a, a public school education not a fundamental right. Uh, basically, you know, the, the, the elites, the political uh, ruling class, uh, along with the the one percent and 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 their cronies are are formulating a a a labor force that will be ignorant uh, that will have no no rights uh, in the court system who will be targeted by police for simply existing much in the ways that black people black and brown people are now uh, but they want people to be accustomed to these violations uh, of their rights at a very early age so I think that's why we're seeing children uh, be targeted by the state and by by the by society at large uh, for things that may have been unthought of maybe a generation ago. 
Yeah, definitely. After the state under this capitalist system works their parents to death, then they want the kids to step in and pick up uh, where they left off and then they'll work them to death. And that is absolutely something we have to continue to fight against. But we're going to take another quick break. We'll be back on the other side of it here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Kim Brown. And we have another caller on the line, Tamara. Thanks for calling, Tamara. Tell us what's on your mind. Good afternoon, Jackie and Kim. I was so excited to hear that or see that Kim Brown's going to be on today. Um, can't wait for your show tomorrow, I think, or is, or, or is it Friday? I forget. Um, but anyway, um, I wanted to raise um, this story about uh, a UN essay or like article that was titled The Benefits of World Hunger. And when they published this on Twitter, um, there was a whole big backlash. And the UN author, uh, George Kent, who's this professor of poli-sci, eventually gave it a new title. And they're now covering up, saying that it was satire. And who, who would ever associate the UN with, with, a, with a satire, right? They're not the Onion. They're not a comedy show. Like we, That's not their role. But if you could indulge me a little bit into reading it, because um, they've taken it down. They've wiped it, I guess, from the Internet. But there's some some sites that have archived it. And so I want to read you this first paragraph. And you tell me if it sounds that uh, satire is the appropriate approach to this. So the title is called The Benefits of World Hunger. It says, we sometimes talk about hunger in the world as if it were a scourge that all of us want to see abolished, viewing it as comparable with the plague or rape. But that naive view prevents us from coming to grips with what causes and sustains hunger. Hunger has great positive value to many people. Indeed, it is, a fundamental, it is fundamental to the working of the world economy. Hungry people are the most productive people, especially where there's a need for manual labor. We in developed countries sometimes see poor people by the roadside holding up signs saying we will work for food. Actually, most people work for food. And so I don't think that sounds like a joke as much as, like, I wonder to what extent do you think the U.N. could be priming on, like, an international scale, like, um, I don't know, like, kind of, like, normalizing death, like, right, with, like, how many people are dying in the U.S., whether it's from COVID, it's from starvation, it's from all kinds of things. And now the UN, I guess, is trying to spin something to like justify more death or to normalize more death. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Thank you so much for your time and good work. 
Thank you so much, Tamara, for your call and bringing this issue up. Uh, Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, And before I forget, Kim, remind folks when they will see you on uh, Burn It Down with Kim Brown next. Thank you so much, Tamara. Burn It Down with Kim Brown airs Tuesdays and Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. However, tomorrow we are off. Uh, our, our production director, Tunde, has the day off, so the show will return this Friday. But you can catch me and Jackie on Black Power Media tomorrow morning on the Remix Morning Show. Indeed, indeed. Always a good time, 8 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And about this U.N. Uh, 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 article, this article that was posted on the United Nations website called The Benefits of World Hunger. Tamara was not lying. That really was an article that was posted. It was not satire because the the article went on to say, how many of us would sell our services if it were not for the threat of hunger? More importantly, how many of us would sell our services so cheaply if it were not for the threat of hunger? When we sell our services cheaply, we enrich others, those who own the factories, the machines, and the lands, and ultimately own the people who work for them, those who depend on the availability of cheap labor, or rather for those who depend on the availability of cheap labor. Labor, hunger is the foundation of their wealth. Now, here's the thing. I don't think the article was actually meant as satire. I think the United Nations did a a disservice by taking it down because the last paragraph points to the problem with the way hunger and poverty is or must be maintained by capitalism. But of course, Kim, the United Nations is not, you know, in 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 um, a, a representative of, of the socialist governments of the world. You know, so of course they have to be careful that they don't uh, upset the sensibilities of the capitalist and very exploitative and imperialist governments. Uh, that are in its membership, chiefly among those, the United States government, which is the imperialist power in the world, stealing the resources, exploiting the people for and and buying people or forcing people into cheap labor to mine and process those resources for the benefit of a very, very few in this world even though this article was not satire and it it is just absolutely horrific with the things that it says hungry people are the most productive people especially when there's a need for manual labor had they kept it up we could be having i i should say organizations in the united nations could and should be having a robust conversation about that last paragraph particularly the last sentence, Kim, that says, for those who depend on the availability of cheap labor, hunger is the foundation of their wealth. What do you think? I think that that we need to take the United Nations at their word. 
when I what I mean is by taking this piece literally and understanding that this was not intended as satire. This is part of what the United Nations stands for. Uh, they are there to uphold capitalist values, imperialist values. And even though I haven't read this piece, I mean, it just sounds as though the typical uh, politics and the, and the fear-mongering tactics of scarcity as a propaganda tool to keep people in line with capitalism or to justify why capitalism is the best system. And the United Nations absolutely is not a representation or, or a good representation of a moral institution. I mean, just but I mean, there are oxymoron all over the place. Like UN peacekeepers, let's mm. up the weight. And who is you? UN peacekeepers uh, kept not the peace. And I'm always taken and taken back to the ways in which the UN peacekeepers uh, conducted themselves brutally and horrifically whilst uh, being deployed and stationed in Haiti by causing the cholera outbreak in Haiti, which killed tens of thousands of people. I, I even think that cholera outbreak might have killed like as much as a half a million people. It was an obscene uh, amount of death. That was perpetuated by the U.N. peacekeepers, not to mention uh, the ways in which they used Haitian women uh, for sex trafficking and, in fact, fathering uh, lots of of half-Haitian children and then leaving the island uh, for for this generation of children to to fend for themselves. So the United Nations, um, when they dispense this sort of uh, ghoulish (laughs) uh, analysis, I think we should absolutely believe them. We need to take them at, at their word. Uh, the fact that they took it down and claimed it to be sarcasm, uh, I, I think is probably in solely in response to the backlash because, you know, it sounds ghoulish because it absolutely is. Uh, that That's not popular amongst those of us who will trade our labor uh, for food and who have to trade our labor for food. That is not a system that we want to see upheld and maintained. Uh, and I think that, the, that, again, because the piece was taken down, could be a sign of what I hope is a changing tide in public opinion um, about the evils and the ills of capitalism and what it's doing to us all. Absolutely. And as we're seeing those who are selling their labor so they can eat, um, workers across this country uh, are struggling to unionize and fighting against those corporate bosses who, yes, are stealing their wages uh, by not paying them enough and not giving them enough uh, benefits in exchange for their labor, and they're unionizing in order to force these corporations to stop doing that. But the uh, corporate bosses are, of course, fighting back. And in the case of Starbucks in particular, uh, the National Labor Relations Board is actually asking a federal court to order Starbucks to stop uh, what they call an array of illegal tactics that are aimed at those workers involved in unionization efforts uh, at the country's chain stores. What is going on with Starbucks, with the so-called progressive CEO? I remember he he, you know, did made such a big deal about being in support of Black Lives Matter. But but now he's union busted. Now is the union busting, Jackie. 
<laughs> Andy Union bus. And Bezos said, wait a second, you hold my beer. No, you hold my beer, Jeff. This is what Howard Schultz is doing. So there's 9,000 Starbucks stores. And uh, the latest count of stores that have actually voted to unionize is north of 150. I don't have the exact number, but it is over 150 stores by this point. So throughout this entire unionization process, which, by the way, here we are in July, and Starbucks didn't. Uh, the Starbucks uh, Workers Union didn't get its first store uh, officially unionized until this year. So they have made tremendous strides uh, in just half a year, which I think is really impressive. But on the other side, that is scaring the pants off of CEO Howard Schultz. And as a result, Starbucks is ratcheting up their union-busting efforts. They have fired a number of workers from stores in Queens, New York, in Memphis, in Denver, um, and I believe one other location. Uh, These workers have been vocal in their efforts to uh, unionize their co-workers, and that's what made them targets uh, for for Starbucks to fire them. Other workers who have uh, been working on behalf of trying to get their their co-workers and their partners unionized um, have had their schedules attacked, um, had their hours cut, had threats of getting their benefits cut. And just to give you an indication, Jackie, in in the sort of slimy ways in which these corporations will seize upon social movements because it sounds cool, but when in actuality, uh, they they don't, you know, stand on their muster with it. Um, Starbucks even alluded to some of their partners, their workers, that if they lived and or worked in a Starbucks location that was now in a abortion-restrictive state, um, Starbucks was, number one, offering to transport workers who were in, 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 in search of um, abortion services to states in which services were still legal. Uh, but they alluded to the fact that if you were part of the union or uh, organizing on behalf of getting the union started at your particular Starbucks location, that that might be in jeopardy. Uh, th- those resources may not be available to you if you are trying to unionize your location or already are part of the union. Um, so the dirty tactics just continue to get even lower. So what's happening today is that the National Labor Relations Board is uh, uh, try- trying to argue that Starbucks in, in federal proceedings today, um, that-, that Starbucks has committed over 200 unfair labor practices, again, which range to um, in- intimidating workers, having closed door meetings with workers, um, having these uh, forced uh, captive audience meetings with workers, showing them anti-union propaganda, outright discouraging them from organizing, firing them, as I mentioned. Uh, and so 200 of these charges are being ar- argued by the National Labor Relations Board today. Um, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz continues to say that he will not recognize the union. Um, so even though, like me, myself, personally, I do not like Starbucks. I don't never drank the coffee. Nothing about Starbucks is appealing to me. Uh, this unionization effort I find fascinating because it is spread like wildfire and, it, and it's really ran by younger people, um, by, by women. 
by queer people, by people of color, by black folks, black workers. Um, so I, I think this is a harbinger, I believe, for the continued um, organization and uh, re revitalization of the labor movement amongst younger workers here in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, just to give people an idea of how Howard Schultz personally feels about unions, uh, he said recently in an interview that he won't work with the union on benefits, which is actually a mandatory subject of bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act. Now, these kinds of comments from Schultz uh, are a part of this investigation, even though they're not the the the, the NLRB uh, and I think the courts aren't quite sure if he has crossed the line of legality just coming out and admitting that he's union busting, but it's certainly something they're taking taking into account. But think about this. The man who is the CEO of the company, and and I'm with you, Kim. I, I don't get why people love Starbucks coffee so much. I think there's just so much caffeine in it that people are just addicted to it now. And we are we are brand focused in this country. We are consumer focused. And we've been convinced that Starbucks coffee is the best out there when it's just not. Um, but but it, it has become incredibly famous. But the man who makes I don't even know how much money. It doesn't even matter. It's more money than you or I could ever make in 100 lifetimes, has said he is absolutely just not going to talk with his own employees about the benefits that they would like to have that they need in order to feel valued while they are selling the company that he leads their labor for a paycheck that is not sufficient to actually support their quality or a decent quality of life. That is, as Kim said earlier, ghoulish. It absolutely is an expression of the blatant, brazen disregard for human dignity, human rights, and workers' rights that we see not just from, you know, the the Howard Schultzes and the Elon Musks in this country, but we see this same attitude from the politicians. The politicians that they basically own with their millions and billions of dollars that they spend giving to these politicians, lobbying them to craft legislation in their favor that further dis, uh, 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 disadvantage workers and particularly the poor. This is what we're up against. We're not just up against capitalism. We're not just up against uh, CEOs, corporate CEOs who are happy to exploit people for cheap labor. Labor. We're not just up against the political class that is in league with them, but we're also up against an American population that is deeply, deeply indoctrinated and entrenched into consumerism to the point that they don't even realize that they are literally buying someone else's exploitation. And we have got to 
work on that, erode that, destroy that with political education and organization. And that's the only thing that will work. But we're out of time for today. I want to thank Kim Brown so much for joining me. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. And until next time, peace. By any means necessary. 